Hello, I'm Ellie Johnson and welcome to the ASU Files. In this interview series, I have the pleasure of speaking to each of the Aussie Speakers USA members and you'll get to know them from another angle over and above what you might read on a speaker listing or see in their sizzle reel. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Andrew Grant. Andrew is the king of creative thinking and innovation. So if you're looking to create a culture of innovation for your team or your organization, Andrew is your man. He and his partner, Dr. Jaya Grant, have written two best-selling books, and I'll ask him more about that in today's discussion. They've spent more than 20 years traveling the world and discovering new insights into innovation and then shaping content that makes enormous and immediate impact. Andrew has a brilliant mind and truly cares about getting his message across to help innovate, lead and transform. He's globally minded and culturally fluent, meaning he's a genius at adapting his content and his wisdom to ensure it's relevant, memorable and most importantly, actionable. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Andrew Grant to the ASU Files. So Andrew, good morning and welcome to the ASU Files. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Great to be here. Great to have you. So before we jump into my questions, could you please give me a snapshot of your background and how that led to where you are today? My background is in education and my partner and I, Dr. Jaya Grant, um, we've been traveling the world for about 30 years looking at what makes creative hygienic cultures and innovative cultures. We have spent extensive time living overseas and in multiple different countries and therefore I've naturally been able to learn to work with different cultures and different people and often virtual teams and teams that have to work across those cultures when they're not all thinking like-minded. And that's resulted in writing two books, one on creative thinking and one on innovation for our clients. Mm. So how many countries have you lived in? Lived in about three, uh, traveled to about 40 and have been traveling for about 20 years to try and understand what are the differences. It's been fascinating research as we've traveled together over that time, looking at what makes a innovative country and then culture and then applying that to the company. Favorite country? Well, I did live in Indonesia for many years, so I'll put that in as favorite for now. <laughs> Great. So there's three words, Andrew, that seem to surround the work that you do and they are innovate, lead and transform. Can you tell me in your own business how you've had to put those words <laughs> into action since our world went in the spin? Well, I'll actually go back 20 years ago in terms of the innovation. We worked with a lot of the big banks globally and they asked us, uh, they really liked the approach of our programs and material and I'll explain that to you later on in the interview. And they came to us, they said, could you teach us about innovation and creative thinking? Uh, it's now called design thinking, back, back then they called it creative thinking. And that got us on a journey about 20 years ago to start to present to uh, companies that don't think they need creative thinking uh, or critical thinking, which is, you know, again, for example, the finance industry, to show them the value of learning to think creatively to solve problems from different perspectives. Uh, leading is, is obviously where we're focusing on because it's leaders that bring about the change within a company. And transforming is the end result. So we're not just giving motivational talks or inf inspirational talks. We hope they're motivational and inspirational, but we feel what we add into the speaker's circuit is to make them engaging, interactional and motivational, but at the same time, make sure they've got business applicable outcomes. And that's the transform side. We want people to walk away saying, this is what we will do different. If it's a result of a 30 minute talk or a three day intervention or a three month intervention, our job is design it so people will walk away with some level of transformation that they can apply back in the business world. 
Mm. And so that word creativity, um, I know that some people get a bit blocked at that word and they say, I'm not very creative or I can't be creative. Can you tell me about your experience with that? Well, it, it, this, is, this is the whole challenge. I mean, unfortunately, we tend, some people think of creativity as artistic and that's the first thing that goes out the window. It's not about artistic ability at all. Creative thinking is the ability to look and solve problems from a different perspective, a different perspective than what your, your competitor might try and look at. If everyone's playing in one sandpit, creativity allows you to go out and find a bigger sandpit to play in and look for solutions quicker and faster and better than what your competitors do. And both the famous IBM CEO survey that went out to 1500 CEOs and recent Davos World Economic Forums said with what's happening with artificial intelligence, the only thing that the employees and particularly leaders need at the moment, the most important thing they need is to develop their creative and critical thinking skills. Everything else will be automated by AI. So it's becoming really important to understand the value of creative thinking. As we said, it's not about staring at clouds and looking at patterns in clouds. It's about finding real solutions to what we call wicked problems. And that is a difficult problem where the problem is not known at the beginning and the problem keeps morphing. And obviously, as we're now living in the uh, post-COVID environment, we are seeing that problems are hitting us that we were not aware of, that we could not strategically plan for, that we could not logically analyze. And therefore, the only response we need to be is leaders need to be agile and fast and the ability to make those decisions taking in the best possible environment. And that's the combination of creative thinking and critical thinking. One without the other is useless. And that's what we really try and put together and give people the opportunity to understand it. Now, you mentioned um, a lot of people have a misconception about creative thinking. Well, we had been te teaching design thinking and creative thinking for 20 years. But what we discovered is um, that many people would come to our workshops and keynote talks saying, yep, that's great, but that's not for me. I'm, I'm not in the creative department. And yet we were saying, well, actually, everyone needs it to solve problems. And people would come full of excuses. And we thought there was no reason uh, or no use teaching great methodology and great tools, by the way, which you can get in books and YouTube for free, um, without giving people the opportunity to seriously diagnose their own personal approach to this problem and, and their company culture's approach and their team's approach. And so our first book we wrote was called Who Killed Creativity? As a side note, we want to make sure it was creative in its approach and not be another dry textbook. But what we were really looking at as we worked with a neuroscientist and psychologist, what are some of the things that are going on up here that block our creativity? Because we know it's important, but if we don't actually do something about it and, and, and get rid of the things, we, we're calling them killers or suspects to stay with that CSI theme, to get rid of those, we need to be able to deal with them first and identify them. So we like to preload any workshop or anything that anyone's doing when they're starting a creative thinking or design thinking intervention with a first a conscious awareness, what are the things within our company that are blocking our creative thinking? And I've seen many, many companies embark on a design thinking process only to have the whole thing fail because they're not getting buy-in from the, from the executive team. They don't get enough traction at the beginning and people say, well, that's not my responsibility. Let's send that off to the creativity department of which there is normally none. Mm. And you mentioned that there's, uh, you have short uh, seminars and 
longer ones and even longer ones too. How, how long does it take you typically for somebody to have that aha moment and realize the difference between creativity and what they need, the blocks that they need to clear? Can you do well, that quickly? Part, part of our great question. Part of our job as educators is to, is to really assess the, and, and one thing we do offer as speakers and we'll offer to any of the people out there is we will custom design it. We are not a one track pony show where we come in with our standard script. We will listen to what the needs are. We will do pre-stakeholder meetings to understand exactly who the audience is and then work within the parameters, whether it's the 18 minute TED talk, which was probably the most challenging one I had to give because I've given lots of longer talks, but to get a great intro, some content and then an outcome with, with applications into 18 minutes was a challenge, but we did it right through to three or four day workshops where we actually do business facilitation and, and start with a more inspirational TED-like style talk, but then move into actually solving people's problems and facilitating that process. Not being experts, but facilitating, which is a different skill set. So look, I, it can range from, from minutes to, to, to days through to some companies will engage us for a six to eight month rollout, where we'll go right through a whole suite of programs that we've designed. But part of our job is to listen to what people want, understand who the audience is, understand where they're at. I like to do a survey and find out before who, who's, who's heard of this word before. If I've got beginners in the room that have never heard about it before, then my job is to adjust the content of the talk to show them the value of this topic. If I've got people that have all done their design thinking courses from Stanford and MIT, then I need to obviously change the content to stretch them. And I think that's really important for a speaker to understand that and work out who their audience is first. And then take mm -hmm. the parameters of time, size. Of course, we can recommend it. I mean, we do think smaller is better and we do think longer is better, but we'll try and work and help educate people to find what works for them. So, so listening and customizing and, and thinking about the audience and what they already know and what they don't know and where you, the level that you need to start is, is obviously important. What else, when you are booked for uh, events, what other things do you do? What other approaches do you have to help make that event a success? Well, that's my first question that I would ask the, the, the sponsor. And, I, and I, I think it's really important to the key stakeholders to, to eventually, maybe not in the initial stage, but to eventually talk to the key stakeholders and ask them working backwards, um, what will make this a success? Now we're asking people, uh, forget about the money they have to pay us. The biggest cost I often feel is the time that you're asking the people to invest. If you took their hourly rate, let's say we had a hundred people at $500 an hour, um, that's a lot of money on their hourly rate if they're wasting their time or if they can just watch a free YouTube video or read a book. So we really have to ask ourselves in our industry now as, as paid professional speakers, which is different to just someone who's a content expert who design and craft a talk specifically for the audience, what value can we offer and how do we make it valuable? So the key stakeholders will say at the end of this session, this is how we can measure success. This is what we want them to do. And I think that sets aside a professional keynote speaker from someone that's just presenting content, or as I mentioned, our biggest competitors now are YouTube. And so that's why it's important to make sure that the speaker does design a program. Just finished working with a large IT company, I won't say who, they were asked me to pre-record a talk. Um, and I said, look, I'm happy to do that, but there won't be any engagement in a pre-recorded talk. I won't be able to play off the audience, even if it was over uh, Zoom. There was a lot of chats going on and we got the humor going through that and conversations. I managed to convince them to do it live um, and it worked very, very successful because we spent several hours with all the key stakeholders prior to the session, actually going through and listening to the jargon of their company, not designing a talk from scratch because that's dangerous itself. 
but readjusting our talk to make sure that their jargon and their words fitted the model and vice versa. And then uh, using that and following the chat lines to keep it engaging throughout the whole process. Amazing. Um, and who do you think benefits most from your expertise? I know it's quite broad there. Who do you think gets the, the most bang for their buck? I'd like to say everyone, but I hate it when people say that when you're buying something. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a big question. <laughs> as I said, our background is education and research, um, and therefore we are not industry specific because the soft skills that we talk about have gone across nearly every industry. We, um, you can look at our biodata, but we have got the market leaders from nearly all of the main industries using our material and engaging us to run programs. Um, many, many of them based in America that would happily see us, us Aussies come out to America to help them facilitate the process. We're not coming out telling them what to do or to be experts, but to help them understand it. Look, we obviously, a senior, a senior audience would benefit from it, but, but equally a junior audience that needs to do it. That's our job. If it's a senior audience, we will adjust the content. If it's a junior audience, we will also adjust the content. If it's more of a sales conference or a kickoff, then it probably needs to have some more fun and engagement and humor. Um, recently, my partner uh, gave a presentation to a, um, a, a IT research company. So they wanted the academic side of it. So we were able to adjust it to the academic content. That's our job to listen to the audience and then move it up and down as needed. I'm hearing a key word of adaptability in, in well, I think one of your questions is going to be, why should you book a speaker? And I think, as I said, our biggest competitors now are, are what's already online. So I think it's really important that we understand what they're saying and do something to help them meet their needs. Fantastic. Tell me a little bit more about the books that you've written. Well, our first book, as I mentioned, was called Who Killed Creativity and How to Get It Back. Um, submitting, a, submitting a brief to a publishing company like Wiley that invest in the book is, 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 almost, is, is, a, is a feat in itself. But we had to convince Wiley with the thousands of other books out there on creativity, why should they, why should they take on the, the job of, of publishing another book? And so we had to do our own needs analysis of what was missing in the field of, of education and creativity. And as I said, there's no shortage of models. But what we felt was missing is everyone assumed that everyone else all wanted to be creative. So we listened to uh, our participants that often would come to our workshops and I'd say, why are you here? And they'd say, because my boss sent me. And I said, oh gosh, that's not a good start. Um, and then we would say to them, well, what do you want to learn from it? And they'd say, well, I'm not creativity. And, and so we started gathering all the excuses and reasons why people thought that it wasn't their job and wasn't their responsibility. And so therefore we put that together and then we worked with a neuroscientist and a psychologist to find out what we're hearing in the workplace is that happening up here in people's minds? And it was really interesting to see some of the issues that were happening in the workplace that were blocking people's creativity, such as fear, such as control, such as apathy. What that meant from a, from a virtual, uh, from a up here in the neuroscience perspective, what's going on in someone's brain when they're locked down by fear? What's going on in someone's brain when they're in a controlling, oppressive environment? And how is that affecting their creativity? There is absolutely no point asking people to come and do a hackathon or a design thinking day or some sort of creativity if people are walking into the room full of fear, control, apathy, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what our first book was about. It's amazing. 
and I can imagine that um, those sorts of lessons, those sorts of aha moments are great, obviously, for the business world, but there would be people walking away being able to take those lessons into their personal life as well. Well, that's the exciting thing. I mean, I, I, I do love helping businesses, but there's nothing more fulfilling than someone coming up to me and say, that helped with my marriage, that helped with my teenage daughter, um, that helped me. I've been struggling this for a long time. I mean, one of the research points that we started is we realised that... Um, 98% of kindergarten children score high in creative thinking and, and divergent thinking. And, and as you track that through to adult, all that school and all that university and all that conditioning, as adults, only 2% of adults score high in the same test that the kids do. And so it's really refreshing to start with that question, what happened, what happened in the, in the uh, between childhood and adulthood in terms of us losing our creative thinking. And that's a real aha moment for people because I ask them, who thinks they're more creative now than they were as a child? And very, very few hands go up in the room. And most people are starting to recognize, gee, when I think about it, I really was more creative as a child than I am as an adult. And yet now is the time we need it more than ever. What happened to us? What went wrong? And that begins our journey of discovering how to be creative. And for a company just to say to its, its team, you must be creative and you must solve this problem and I'm going to give you some pizza and coke and ask you to stay up on Friday night and work all through the night, it's not going to happen. It has to start with the culture and it has to start with people's mindsets up here. Once we unblock that, then people, then, then the creativity floods in. Brilliant. I love that. <laughs> I'm just picturing a whole lot of people with their pizza and Coke being told, get creative, get creative. Oh, look, get you creative. know what? I'll give you another example. I, um, I got taken up to one of the top floors of a multinational building. I won't say where and, it was, and I won't say who, but that invested, it was a Fortune 50 company, and that invested millions and millions of dollars in creating this you know, really cool office. The whole floor was looked phenomenal. Uh, you know, the usual stuff to try and encourage people's creativity. And then the boss took me around and he showed it to me all. And I had to give the, you know, the, the great oohs and ahs, what a great place this is. And then he took me into the room and he said, but Andrew, it's not working. And I said, why? And he said, well, we're still all sitting at our own desks. People are claiming the, the best desks in the corner by putting their picture on it. We've still got a terrible hierarchy. And as he was talking, all those words that we discovered in our book, which he hadn't read, control, fear, apathy, narrow-mindedness, pessimism, um, they all started to come out in the conversation. And I felt like saying, you've spent millions and millions of dollars on this new office out and on creating these creative labs, hoping to, to disrupt your industry. And you've done everything except address what's going on up here in people's minds. It's not going to work until we start to address the real issues that are affecting people's minds to allow them to be creative. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes. And, and the most disturbing part about that story, you said that that, uh, that gentleman hadn't read your book. I mean, come on. Well, he did. Straight did you away. give him a signed copyright then? <laughs> I, I didn't want to sell it. I didn't want to upsell him. But, but here I was, here I was hearing, here I was hearing um, him, you know, as I said, taking me around and doing the more face saving tour and then sitting down. And, and as I listened to his conversation, he literally named all of the seven killers. Now, he didn't name them as, as, as articulated as we've done because it took us a long time to come up with the, with the top seven. But he literally went through all of them. And I had to say to him, you've spent all this money. What have you done to invest in your people? What skills have you given your people? What training and development have you given them in order to be creative? You can't just spend all this money, throw them into a lab and then say, now produce the results. It doesn't work. Over and over again, it doesn't work. Mm, okay, so we have Andrew needs to come before the pizza and coke and fancy offices. Got that? That's what we're hoping. 
Um, so, Andrew, how how would a client measure the return on on investment? Well, once we once we've cleared out the the cobwebs and 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 as I said, we we like to play off that Cluedo type game to use a metaphor because metaphors become memorable. Uh, there's only so much information you can listen to a talking head or read a book. But when you get a metaphor, and, you, and, you, and we'll get to our methods in a, in a minute, but the metaphor of the crime scene, and we try and theme it up that way, not as a gimmick, then people remember it. And so we will have clients coming back to us two, three, five years later saying, oh, I, I really remembered that. I understood that this was blocking my creativity, and now I can make a difference. But better still, once we've done the diagnostic and removed the killers from people's minds and, and jokingly, you know, like, like the Cluedo game was it was a control in the, in, the, in the finance department shutting it down with a weapon of lacerating legacy, you know, then once we've removed those killers and those suspects, then we can start talking about models and methodologies to, to get on and, and, and deal with creative thinking and solve these wicked problems using a design thinking style methodology. And the reason clients keep coming back and saying we want more is I've had people say to me, we've solved a problem in two hours that's taken us three years to deal with. And so once they get the methodology, once they get the killers out of their mind, then the floodgates come open and all of a sudden they can start making those connections, which is what creative thinking is about. It is about making two connections that normally don't exist that we can't see and bringing it together where a one plus one equals three. And we've, I, I could go through a whole list of, uh, but I don't want to share the companies online for confidentiality reasons, but many, many problems that companies have given us and asked us to solve. Well, we're not solving it for them. We're now going to facilitate the experience. I mean, one, one recent one was a, a shop that said, um, how do we keep our staff employed when we pay the minimum salary? And I thought, well, there's a difficult one, but, but that's a creative problem. That's a wicked problem. That's a challenging one for them to try and understand. And so why do we need this now in this, in this post-COVID phase? As I mentioned, COVID is a problem that we don't know where it's going and we don't know what problems it's throwing at us. And it's no good just saying to those executives, let's sit down and have a brainstorming session and solve the problem. If we don't properly identify the problem, properly find the ambiguity in the problem, then ideate it, and then prototype and test it to make sure it works and works and works. It's no good just having a couple of dominant personalities sitting in the room saying, here's a problem, let's solve it. Now we move into what I call the second part of our book and the second part of what we would like to offer. And that is a very clear, and it sounds funny, but methodological process to use creative thinking and critical thinking to solve difficult problems. Amazing, thank you. All right, we're near the end. There's, I could listen to you for ages. That's so, so interesting. Uh, for anybody that is just starting out on their, their journey of creativity and innovation, what's one little golden nugget that you could leave them with today for them to go well, away? It, would, it would be to think about before you jump into it, what are the things that are, uh, I mean, as I said, if 98% of children score high on creativity and 2% of adults do it, the first question would be what happened? Um, and, and then there's another question, why aren't kids CEO of companies? Well, that's because they can't implement. So we do, we do actually need the creative thinking and the critical thinking to work hand in hand with each other. But I think if someone's starting off today, what they really need to understand is what, what happened in their journey. If, 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 if I ask every, every audience I ask, who thinks they're more creative as a child than as an adult, 98% like of hands go up. Then the, then the question really is, well, what happened? What can we do differently? Lovely. Love it. Lots of wonderful, wonderful lessons there. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. I know that you are very busy. You've got lots of work on, which is fabulous. But thank you for your time today on the ASU Files. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Uh -huh.